Well, Tim, it is so fun to get to do this together, man. Yep. Um, you, you mentioned the word uh, keys in your teaching. You, know, you said, like, this is one of the keys to mm. understanding. Mm. Um, and I once heard the scripture described as a mansion where all the doors are locked, <laughs> but the keys are in the books that unlock the other doors. And so as you understand one book of the scripture actually unlocks mm. understanding of another book mm. of scripture. Mm. And I heard that again as you were talking about the melody. Mm. Um, so thank you for unlocking mm. some of this for us. And now we're going to jump into some questions and, and we're going to allow everyone here to do some interaction. So let's start here. Is the book of Job an allegory or is it historical? Is this a piece of poetry that shows us something abstractly about Jesus or is this a real guy that this really happened to? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, maybe this is probably, you know, pedantic, but, uh, you know, the, it is poetry, the center part. It's dense Hebrew poetry from chapter 3 to um, 40, um, but then with narrative, uh, prologue, and epilogue. So, um, uh, followers of Jesus who believe that the scriptures are a gift from the spirit and the human authors believe Jesus rose from the dead differ on this question. So let's, um, you know, l let's just register like this isn't a litmus test for whether or not you love Jesus, right? Um, and it's an important, it's an important question. So uh, w one, Job is mentioned one other time in the Hebrew Bible, um, and then he's mentioned in the New Testament. In the Hebrew Bible, it's the prophet Ezekiel uh, who mentions Job. It's in Ezekiel chapter 14. And uh, what he mentions Job among the most righteous, blameless people you could ever imagine. And he lists Job alongside Noah and Daniel, uh, who are all th three of the most flawless characters in the Hebrew Bible, well, except the thing that Noah did at the end. So um, it's clear, I think that it's clear evidence that Job was a, was a non-Israelite, of what, in, whose story was widely known and whose life story as like a righteous, blameless individual. Um, so the question is, uh, did this book, am I being asked by the biblical authors to assume that there's some sort of oral tradition about Job's story that got passed down and that some like ancient like video recorder or something of like these long poetic dialogues you know, that this represents what these people actually said. And I, to me, that just presses the, the bounds of reasonableness. Um, I think it's most, and this is just my take, people would differ, I think it's most likely that it's a wisdom thought experiment about a known, a culturally known, uber-righteous figure in their culture and time. And that uh, the, what the biblical authors are doing is they're taking all of the core vocabulary and themes of the melody of the whole scriptural collection, and then they're working a cycle through the melody, but putting as a main character an actual historical figure uh, in Israel's memory. Um, I think that's the most likely explanation. And um, I think the biblical authors are giving lots of clues throughout that that's how they want readers to, uh, to take the book. Yeah, that's really helpful, and I think it 
might help us lean naturally into another one of the questions we've received, which is, what are we to make of God's permission to the mm. Satan mm -hmm. to afflict Job? How, how does that fit into the melody, as you were yeah. phrasing? Yeah, yeah. So uh, if, I, if I wasn't clear on this, that'll give me a, maybe a chance to be more clear. Um, the challenge that happens inside of us when we see God hand over his righteous servant to unjust suffering is the same challenge that we ought to have when God hands over his beloved son to suffering and death. It's the same thing happening. Um, and so the fact that we don't get as, well maybe you do get triggered when God hands over Jesus to suffering, but um, when I come to these moments with Job or even in the story of Jesus, and what all of the closest followers of Jesus saw revealed in the God of Job and in the God who handed Jesus over to death was the, in a revelation of the love of God. God is proud of Job. He's confident in Job. And he knows that Job will pass the test. That's why he allows him to undergo it. And that's exactly the same point of the melody that Jesus is playing out. God, the Father trusts the Son has entrusted everything over to the Son and knows that he's the only one who can be for the humans what the humans have failed to be for themselves. And so um, I guess that's, for, for me, it's both forward illumination from Job to help understand what's happening in the story of Jesus, but then it's back illumination from the story of Jesus that helps me understand what God is doing with Job. What I don't think it's teaching us is, you know, sometimes if God wakes up on the wrong side of the bed, he might just like, you know, put a landmine in your way to test you, you know. Um, that, I think that's us making the book of Job answer a set of questions that we have that's really different than what Jesus said the Bible is designed to communicate. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it completely makes sense. And I also heard you saying uh, a number of times, you know, that the, the way that we read this book, the question that we should be bringing to it is mm. not, how mm. do we square the problem of evil? Mm -hmm. But the question that we should be bringing to it is, how do I respond to injustice mm. as mm. Jesus responds to injustice? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this book is giving us a kind of a shadow or a glimpse mm -hmm. or maybe another angle at the melody yeah. uh, toward yep. that question. Yeah, yeah. The biblical story is telling us what God is doing about evil and suffering in the world, culminating the story of Jesus, which becomes ideally the model and the pattern of my life as an apprentice of Jesus. And that's what the book of Job is for. That's what the hammer is for. And you can make the book of Job answer other questions, but we ought to know that we're likely going to misuse it in the process, and we should be very, very tentative uh, when we're making the book of Job try and answer things it really wasn't designed to do. Yeah. Yeah. But that's true of all, all of Scripture, I think. Yeah. So, um, do you think that the courtroom structure of the heavenly realm that is portrayed in Job mm. and uh, portrayed graphically in that video that we just saw. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, and it shows up elsewhere in the Bible. Is that merely an idea from culture or is it, uh, or of the biblical writers, or mm. is that a reflection of, of true reality of what the heavenly realms are like? Yeah. Yep. 
<laughs> yeah, exa that's exactly right. That is exactly the question. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, the divine court uh, scene uh, uh, appears in all, all different parts of the Bible, in, in the Torah, in the prophets, in the Psalms, um, in Job. Um, and it appears uh, in the New Testament as well. Um, in John, the visionary, in the Revelation, um, John sees the heavenly throne room and with the creatures and so on. So here's something that's really interesting is that all of the imagery in all of those different passages uh, has strong parallels to depictions of um, the divine realm in the cultures of Israel's neighbors, of uh, divine courtrooms, of divine courtiers or spiritual beings um, that look very similar to what the cherubim are described as looking at. Actually, if you, you could just Google, like, um, you know, the modern, in modern day Iraq, they have this, you know, this big build out of how they restored a part of ancient Babylon. And these guardian creatures um, that the kings of Babylon placed at the gates were these multiform animal winged creatures with human faces and so on. They're really, they're called the Lamassu statues. They're really cool looking. And they're like, they look almost exactly like what cherubim looked like as they're described in the Bible. So this is interesting, is that the biblical authors used the imaginative framework that they had, and when they encountered the divine realm, that's what they saw and experienced. And that used to bother me, um, and I guess it, maybe it still does a little bit. Um, but one other thing that became really noticeable to me was that every time that this divine court is described in all of these different visions, and scenes throughout Scripture, Old and New Testaments, it's always a little bit different. The creatures look different. Sometimes they have two wings. Sometimes they have four. Sometimes they have six. Sometimes they're glowing. Sometimes they're on fire. Sometimes they're smoking. Uh, and, and so, like, it's... I think what, um, what we're up against here is the fact that God has chosen to communicate through humans. Like, the Scriptures are the products of people. Um, and the Bible is, like, not bashful about this fact. It actually tells us about the writing of many of the scrolls by people in the, in the books themselves. And so, um, in, in a way, the question is, is similar to the fact is, does God speak Aramaic? Well, Jesus of Nazareth spoke Aramaic. Does that mean that God speaks Aramaic? Well, no, Jesus spoke Aramaic. Are you with me? It's actually just a different version of the same question. Every time that God is going to interface with humans, it's going to be in the form of human language, imagination, and cultural expression. And what that doesn't mean is that Isaiah or John the visionary didn't actually encounter something. But the thing that he encountered was interpreted by his brain given the cultural and imaginative framework that, that he had. And the same is, is true for me. And that doesn't mean it's not real. If anything, what we're trying to say is whatever the presence of God is, it's more real than anything you could ever imagine. It, and it can only be captured in human words and imagination given the fact that, you know, I'm not God and so I'm going to describe it with the language and categories that I have. I'm sorry, this is a really big question. Um, but, uh, but to me, uh, the, uh, the divine court scenes in the Bible raised this question for me a long, long, long time ago and so I care about it. And I think it's an important one because it really forces us to reckon with the nature of the Bible as a product of both divine 
and human initiatives partnered together. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm tracking with you. I, I'm, I'm contemplating, this is what I'm contemplating. Often, you and I eat food together and you talk about the Bible and I happen to also really, really like the Bible. <laughs> and, and so there's like connections firing off yeah. in my head while you're talking yeah. that, that I'm excited to ask you about. And that's happening right now. And I'm like, <laughs> there's a lot of people in here for me just to be doing that thing that we do over food. Yeah, totally. But that being said, so this past Sunday we looked at Luke 18 and the story of the persistent widow. Yes, yeah. Which happens to take place in a courtroom. Mm. And you were talking about like the, like the blood of the innocents crying out. Yes, for yes. For justice. Yes. And the end of that story is, and will not God give justice to his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? So might Jesus be giving us a mini picture of the same melody that mm. we see played out in Job in mm. that story mm. where he borrows the courtroom imagery and everything? Mm. Is, is there a connection there? Yes. Mm. We really should have talked before my last sermon. I feel like you six years ago. <laughs> yeah. No, did the outcry, man, the outcry of uh, the innocent, it happens in so many powerful ways. The one that I was um, meditating on today um, is in the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. Um, and this is where Abraham and Sarah abuse, sexually abuse their Egyptian slave to produce a son, which then gets discarded a few chapters later. Um, and, um, you know, a longstanding puzzle in the story of Abraham is why God asks that Abraham give up the firstborn son that Sarah and Abraham actually do produce, uh, with asking for uh, the life of Isaac, right? Sacrifice on Mount Moriah. How's that story fit into your view of God, right? And so, um, actually, I think it ought to play a really important role in our view of God. But um, that's the next event. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but. Um, there's this law in Exodus that it's cycling through the unjust, the suffering, and the cry of the innocent. And um, that Hagar's name is the Hebrew word for the immigrant. Hagar is the Hebrew word, the immigrant. And so there's this law in Exodus 22 about how Israel is to never oppress the immigrant in their midst because you were oppressed in Egypt. And then God says, if, if an immigrant is oppressed within Israel, I will hear their cry and it will reach my ears and I will turn your, that is Israel's parents into, or I will uh, turn your, Israel's parents, uh, Israel's children into orphans. I'm going to kill you. If you oppress um, me, I'm going to decreate you. And so I think that law and the story of what Abraham and I, uh, Sarah do to uh, the immigrant, I mean, God's really, really angry about what Abraham and Sarah did to the immigrant in their midst. And it unleashes this horrific chain of suffering and division in the family of Abraham. And it's all about the outcry of the innocent because what does Hagar do when she's oppressed by God's chosen one? The irony there is it's God's chosen ones who are the ones doing the oppressing in that story. 
and the immigrant goes out to the wilderness and she cries out to God. And God hears her cry and delivers her and then brings a severe act of judgment on his chosen one, but then delivers him in the last second. And so these themes, it's not just like here or there, it's like every story is cycling through the melody. And so Jesus will hit it in a parable, the Abraham stories will hit it here, Allah and Exodus will hit it there. It's, it's everywhere. There's that bit, that famous bit in the book of Job, um, where uh, he says God gives and takes away, right? So how are we to understand that? Does that mean that God has some sort of role in causing suffering? Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, he certainly thinks that at that point in the story. Um, I think, and this is for, uh, for me, uh, what I need to work on more in Job is about the progression of his character. I mean, when Job says that, it's chapter two. <laughs> it's the beginning. And I'm pretty sure anybody who's good at developing a character in the story wants you to take, the whole port take away the whole portrait, not just like the first thing the character said in the first scene. And so um, when Job says that, he's also going to say a lot of other things that's going to accuse God um, of being responsible for all of the suffering in the world. And so I think there's something about how we evaluate Job's words in light of the prologue and the epilogue. And um, I think that's something, to be perfectly honest, I need to process a lot, a lot more. Job is definitely giving voice to something that is a major theme in the story, which is when God selects a chosen one on behalf of the many, so that through them his blessing can go out to the many, that often leads to suffering and hardship for that chosen one. Um, and it's a part of God's journey with his chosen one, and I think Job is giving voice to that, and he's not angry about it. Um, and it doesn't seem to me that Jesus was angry about it when he was in the wilderness either. Um, so there's some aversion. I could even sense it in myself right now where um, I want to somehow protect God's reputation from ever dealing severely <laughs> with, with people. And uh, that's something I just continually have to surrender if I'm ever going to hope to understand these texts on their own terms and not remake them my, my, my own image. I know this is an area where I really need to just sit and listen more to scripture. And my hunch is I'm probably not the only one. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, speaking of the progression of Job's character, um, Job goes, we, we watch him go through this process mm. of trusting God for a time and then just not being able to take it anymore. And, and then re-finding himself in that surrender mm. to the wisdom of God. Mm. So mm. what, if anything, can we take away from the book of Job in terms of finding ourselves mm. in the story? Mm. And how what, might we mm. walk a similar path mm. when suffering comes knocking at our door mm. and disillusionment settles in after a time mm -hmm. to begin to rebuild trust and mm. find surrender again? Yep. Um, yeah, that's a really important question. Uh, I'm not sure I'm adequate to the task of giving it the answer it deserves. Um, 
but here is uh, what occurs to me in the moment. Um, the book of Job doesn't, it, the book of Job's session through the melody um, doesn't foreground and highlight the hostile one's role uh, in the suffering of all of creation. There's other cycles of the melody that really focus on that. And Job is really focused on the internal processing of God's righteous servant uh, as he goes through suffering to intercede for the many. But if we take the whole cycle of the biblical story, um, and this is what I was trying to get at, um, I think the one that Jesus was angry at was not God. It was that freaking snake. That snake. That's the one that Jesus was angry at. And so, if I'm going to adopt Jesus' view of why the world is the way that it is, it means recognizing that we live outside of Eden. And outside of Eden, we are all destined for the dust of death and for suffering. In this world, you will have trouble. And please don't expect anything else, I think is what Jesus is trying to say. Except you except we get these moments, these, these little gifts of Eden in the form of a friendship, in the form of a good meal, in the form of laughter with a friend, in the form of a gift of healing, in the form of ways that God speaks to us. Through, are you guys with me? Yeah. These little Eden gifts that we get outside of Eden in, in the wilderness. <clears throat> And it seems to me that Jesus really saw the suffering and evil in his world as a result of this huge cascade of cause and effect all leading back to the lies of the snake. And I have to imagine that that based on his words and his teachings that that's what he believed and that that's what carried him through the wilderness, through all of those nights in agony and prayer knowing that the priests were, had a plan to murder him. I mean, just imagine trying to sleep through the night knowing that there's someone who wants to murder you. Like, I've never had that experience. And Jesus walked around with that. That was his daily lived experience for like a long time. Like, what carried him through? And I'm just certain it wasn't a suspicion of God's character. I am, I am certain that it was a, a, a hatred for the snake. And knowing that he was doing exactly what God was calling him to do, um, to overcome the snake uh, through his death and resurrection. And so what, what does it mean for us to process that? I want to come to a place where the suffering that happens to my life and that happens to the people that I love and that's happening you know, I mean, the stuff that you came out, you know, this week about what's happened in Ukraine over the last few weeks and all these civilian deaths, right? And we're all like shocked that this is how humans treat each other. And man, the longer I sit with the Hebrew Bible and it's like, this, like, why would I expect anything different? Like, this is what humans always do to each other. And if, if I happen to think that this is not how humans treat each other, it's because I'm the delusional one. Right? And, and this is what happens every day in every human community, through all of human history, across the whole planet. In this world, you will have trouble. I shouldn't expect anything else. And it's not God's fault if I'm taking up the mind of Jesus, I think. It's the snake's fault. And what God is doing is doing something through uh, Jesus and the work of his spirit to reunite heaven and earth. 
And it, I'm sorry. What I, well, I'm not sorry, but what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to say. And this is my nerdy way of doing it, but it's just who I am. It's just my temperament. But I'm really, I'm thinking personally and pastorally. When, when suffering crashes into our lives, we go to these default modes of processing our life experience. And they're not the modes that you consciously think about. They're the ones that are deeply ingrained within us. And so it seems to me what apprenticeship to Jesus means is somehow beginning a set of habits and practices in my life that, where, I, where that new narrative that is Jesus' story becomes my like, new second native language for how I process suffering in my life. And I want to get to a place where when suffering happens to my life and the people that I care about, where I'm not suspicious of God, but I, God becomes the only place that I know to go. And where my anger is directed is at that freaking snake. Are you with me? I want to get to that place. I'm not there. And I don't fully know why I'm not there. But all I can say is that I've been formed by other stories about suffering and why the world is the way that it is that are not how Jesus would tell the story. And I don't want to tell the story that way anymore. Are you with me? And um, so I don't know if... Well, I think that was a response to the question. But that's how I responded. Yeah, I also think it was a response. And, you know, what I'm thinking about is, is you know, in, in the garden, Adam and Eve don't go to God after the deception of the serpent, yeah. right? Yeah, that's right. In the book of Job, God is upset with the friends because they're talking a lot about him, trying to make sense of this puzzle. Yeah. Only Job is going to him, even though, as you pointed out, Job might be the heretic among them, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and God is pleased with Job. Yes. I think one of the most maybe practical things that we can do when suffering comes into our lives is to go to Jesus. You know, the, the resurrected Jesus shows up again and again and again to people who thought they knew and understood God until he went to a cross and died. And then God did something that they didn't recognize. God did the kindest and greatest thing that they didn't recognize. And then Jesus shows up again to his followers in resurrected form and they can't recognize him. And Jesus so lovingly poses questions where he draws out their deep need, their deep questions that, you know, woman, why are you weeping? Peter, do you love me more than these? It's, it's what are you talking about as you're walking together along the road, right? It's questions that draws those other stories up to the surface. And then Jesus talks about those things with them and somewhere along the way in those conversations, they recognize him again. And so I would just say, if, if you find yourself trying to rebuild trust with God by listening to Tim Mackey talk about God, you're not going to get there. You've got to take the fight to God. And you have to discover what is discovered again and again on the pages of Scripture, and that is that only Jesus can heal you. But He's so eager to heal you. And when you recognize Him again, you will be utterly undone by his goodness 
somehow at an even greater level than you were mm. before the unjust suffering entered your life in the first place. Mm. And I don't know how to explain that mm. except the attempt that, that is made mm. in Romans of mm. even what the enemy intends for evil, mm. somehow he uses it for good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One more question. Um, Sorry, I'm choosing. What does it look like? Let's do this one. I changed my mind. (laughs) We're going back to the heavenly courtroom. Okay. Okay? I love it. Yeah. Uh, Is Satan in God's counsel? How does he gain access Mm -hmm. to the courtroom? Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. yeah. That's a great. That's a great question. You can see why it was hard for me to choose. I mean, this is <laughs> it's quite a pivot. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Um, yeah. The the core um, the core statement of the melody that happens in those early chapters of Genesis um, work like this. Actually, this is perfect. How much time do we have? Is that, is that the right clock right there? That's the right clock. Okay, it looks to me like you have six minutes okay. and 17 All right. seconds. Okay. All right. Um, so when but you I have... haven't taken math since <laughs> I was 16. <laughs> I studied the Bible like you. <laughs> um, I thought about doing the whole talk about this and then ended up in like this scrapyard of my notes. Um, but this is actually another biblical part of the melody that's been hugely helpful for me in trying to live in a new narrative when it comes to evil and suffering. In the opening, there's, there's two narratives that begin the Bible. Um, there's the seven-day creation narrative, and then there's the one-day creation narrative. And, you know, the fact that they work on different timelines and people have all kinds of different ways of working out the differences between them. The first narrative begins with a description of the pre-creation state which doesn't really fit our modern ways of talking about the origins of the universe, but it made perfect sense to the biblical authors in their cultural context. And the pre-creation state is described as formless and void, or in, in Hebrew, uh, tohu vavohu, uh, wild and waste, a, a, a desolate wilderness. And then the second line in Genesis 1 verse 2 is a, a scene of darkness over the face of deep, abysmal waters. So a desert, which is typically characterized by the absence of water, <laughs> and then in the next line, darkness over way too much water. Um, are you with me? And it's two images that just sit there that seem intention on the surface level, but they're two ways of talking about the same reality, which is the biblical author's way of talking about non-existence, disorder, and chaos. And so the rest of the seven-day narrative takes up that second image of the dark chaos waters and then it's about God splitting the waters and parting them. The second narrative, uh, which begins in Genesis 2 verse 4, takes up that image of the will, trust me, this is all an answer to the question, Um, uh, takes up the narrative and it begins creation over again, but telling the story of creation beginning with a desolate wilderness, Genesis 2 verse 4. And man, nothing can grow there and there's no humans and there's no farming and there's no rain. Game over. It's like a non-starter. But just like God's breath 
entered the darkness and began separating. So in this story, God provides water that turns that dirt into mud and the clay and then he forms the human and he brings his breath to it and you get humans. Okay. So what's interesting um, is in both of those stories, the depictions of chaos and disorder in the pre-creation state are that of a desolate wilderness and that of uh, darkness and chaos waters. And then as you get on into the rest of the biblical story, those become primary images to talk about how creation, when it's handed over to human evil and folly, we're either constantly reducing creation back into a form of chaotic flood or desolation and wilderness. And so when Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden, they go from the garden back into the wilderness where they, where they die. Uh, or uh, the, like the flood, you know, like God creates out of the waters and then um, he decreates by letting the waters come back over creation. And so desolate wilderness and dark chaotic waters are the primary images of death, disorder, and chaos. And so for a long time, when I was introduced to the, what the story of Christianity and the Bible is all about, it was a way of telling the story of the Bible that went like this. Everything was created to be perfect. Humans give in to sin, sin and death, and make it all bad and terrible. And through Jesus, everything is going to be perfect again one day. You guys tracking with me? It's a very common way of retelling the story. Um, the problem with that retelling of the story is the Bible. <laughs> um, because that's not how the story begins. It doesn't begin perfect. It begins with darkness and disorder and chaos. And out of that state of chaos, God doesn't make something that's perfect. He makes something that is seven times over called, in Genesis 1, it's called good. And I'm pretty sure good doesn't mean perfect. <laughs> good means good, yeah? But perfect means complete. And so the way the biblical authors tell the story is God brought order and goodness out of chaos. But then when he puts the human in the garden, in proximity to his own life, um, what that is is an opportunity for good to become complete. And that is an opportunity that is forfeited and never realized in the biblical story because they, they right, they make this, the dumb choice and they go where? They go out into the wilderness and then it ends up in a flood again. Are you with me? So in, in other words, um, the resolution to the biblical story, Jesus comes onto the scene not to restore a perfection that was lost, but it's actually to reclaim a future and a destiny that has never been experienced by any human before. Are you tracking with me? And so, um, sorry, what I'm talking about is the overall, how we imagine the story that, that we're living in. So I think within Jesus' imagination, when he encounters suffering and pain, it's not, well, we live in a world that fell from perfection and God's trapped us here, we're, we're all suffering, and man, if he was just nicer to us, he would like let us at least, you know, give us some air and give us some, right? I mean, the, that, this story tends toward a portrait of God that he kicked us out of the good place and he's keeping us down here and we're suffering and if he was nicer to us, he might like give us some relief. And that's not how the biblical story works. The biblical story works is that we live in a good world, but man, it is not complete. And the problem is that we keep, through our own folly and believing the lies of that snake, 
keep giving ourselves and our communities and creation over to chaos and disorder. Are you tracking with me? And so the death and the suffering that, that's in our world within that frame of the biblical story is exactly what you would, it's the natural course of all creation. If, if God doesn't create, it's just the way things are, desolate and, and wilderness. And so um, I think I'm, I'm trying to wrap my mind around that way of telling the story. And if that wasn't very clear, it's because I'm still trying to find a way to articulate it. Uh, am I making any sense at all? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We're okay. with you. Yeah, totally. But I think the point is that within that way of telling the biblical story, which I think is actually the way it's trying to present itself to us, suffering and death is about God's good creation being dragged back into a state of disorder and chaos. And um, what Jesus is, is doing is rescuing people from the chaos and opening up a way to the reunion of heaven and earth and to com completion once again. And it's just another way that begins, helps us begin to imagine evil and suffering within a different kind of story. Um, I don't feel like I did a very good job of explaining that just now. So I apologize. And um, my hope is to make a Bible project video about that. <laughs> so so uh, hopefully one day it'll be a lot more clear. But sorry, anyway. Tim, you started tonight by, I think, celebrating that Jesus is up to something really special among us right now. And we're all a part of it. And you're a part of it too. And, you know, one thing that happens when a church comes alive is that the, the church starts to look like the body of Christ, where each one plays a part, and it becomes more beautiful when that happens. And so I'm so grateful that you would bring who you are and the way that God has made you and function as a member of this body tonight. And... Um, I just want to say that you are our brother, and we're so grateful that you're a part of this family. Um, not because you can help us to love the Bible more, though I think that's really important. The Bible's not getting a whole lot of love these days. And when I hear and get to talk with you about the Bible, I love it more every time. But because you also have been woven into this great story of redemption of which none of us are deserving, but every one of us has somehow found ourselves into. So thank you, brother. We're really, really grateful for you.